Welcome. You're listening to Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and today in studio I have with me a dear friend and colleague, Dr. Barry Lubin. Barry is the medical director for Affinity eHealth, and we're going to learn a lot more about his company and some really helpful and I think interesting information around how do we really ensure success or improve the odds that someone's going to be successful in their recovery. So thank you for being here today. You're very welcome. And I also have David Donaldson, who's the CEO of the Atlanta Healing Center. Welcome, David. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. So Dr. Lubin is um, a very distinguished uh, man, very well respected in the field of addiction medicine. Uh, He's a graduate of the Hahnemann Medical School and has practiced in Florida and Georgia. Spends a lot of time now on the road, although I think you live in Atlanta. You are That is correct. That is correct. (laughs) Um, Because um, Affinity is actually a Canadian company. Am I correct? Actually, you're half correct. Affinity is a duly incorporated company both in the United States and our American division spends most of its time doing contracts for the U.S. Department of Defense and National Guard. We are Canadian incorporated as well and that's where our work tank is and most of the compliance division of Affinity works out of there. I, of course, work out of my suitcase (laughs) and hotels. Because you are all over the country. You are a medical review officer, and I am sure that many of our listeners have no idea what that is, except it sounds very official. Can you inform us? I'd be happy to. The term medical review officer grew out of the military, which is where the officer comes from. The military, U.S. military, were really leading the field in drug testing as a result of the post-Vietnam era when they had to deal with so many GIs who were addicted to chemicals. They put in a program of drug testing and they trained and certified military physicians as medical review officers. That term has carried forward over the last 40 years, and now in civilian drug testing programs, we also use medical review officers. A medical review officer is a physician, must be a physician, MD or DO, who's specifically trained in urine and blood and hair toxicologies and have the ability and the training to interview the donor of the specimen to talk about the donor's history and how it relates relative to the result of the toxicology test. For example, if a urine drug screen comes back positive for cocaine and the donor said, well, my doctor gave me penicillin for my strep throat, that must be why. (laughs) The medical review officer steps in and says, no, 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 that's not why. And um, it's a very important interface, I think, and most very reliable companies who do drug testing on their employees, uh, like hospitals and other um, agencies, as well as, you know, the transportation industry. I think that's one of the biggest users of um, drug testing and then uh, medical review officers. It's an interface to make sure, because sometimes that positive cocaine could actually be legit. Well, if, not if often cocaine, right. but certainly 
with valid prescriptions. That's what I mean. Prescription drugs in urine can can be the result not of abuse. Right. But rather the result of using Right. So so for example, I will confess on myself, the one and only time I used cocaine, I did not knowingly do that. I was having an ENT procedure and apparently my doctor swabbed the inside of my nose with topical cocaine, which is a local anesthetic and it causes the mucous membranes and the blood vessels to shrink. I thought I was having a heart attack. I my heart was beating right out of my chest and they had to flip the chair back. They had to give me some oxygen. I really thought I was a goner. It was a 911 time. So, occasionally uh, and, and my question to the doctor was, people pay good money for this, and apparently, yes, as we know, they will. Um, my experience was not very positive, but there are occasional, very rarely, but occasional times when doctors might use a topical cocaine in a procedure. That is correct, and it is very occasional, and it, the similar word novocaine and xylocaine that sometimes is used as an excuse right. for a positive cocaine. Again, that does not hold water. Exactly. That is different. Ear, nose, and throat doctors do occasionally use topical cocaine still to this day. And as part of an interview that I would do as a medical review mm-hmm. officer for a person who has a urine drug screen, which is positive for cocaine, is have you had a recent ear, nose, and throat procedure? And if the answer is yes, then look further into the history Mm -hmm. and see if there is documentation of said use. Because you are correct, that would be Mm -hmm. a, and in DOT terms, that's actually then reported as a negative test. Right. Because Because it's a legitimate prescription. And I think as an advocacy um, component for um, for the, the both the company testing and the individual, it is really important because drug testing is not as simple as dipping one of those little sticks in a cup of urine and thinking that you've got a valid result. That is so correct. There are so many other factors. Uh, the drug screening that that we at Affinity support is not point-of-collection dipstick testing. Point-of-collection dipstick testing may have its place, but it's very limited, in part because of the huge numbers of false positives, in part because of the lack of validating the fact that that yellow liquid is actually urine and not Mountain Dew. Right. Because they look alike. They do. They look alike. Uh, And in part also because... The eyeball that reads the result of point of collection testing is certainly not as sensitive as the gas chromatography mass spectrometry machinery that laboratories spend over a million dollars on to determine an exact result. Exactly. And the bulk of the testing we at Affinity do are for licensed professionals who have a history of drug and alcohol use and who are able to continue to practice their trained profession, continue to be productive and in the workforce as doctors, nurses, pharmacists, attorneys, and many other professions, as long as they can guarantee 
to their state mm -hmm. that they are clean of drugs and alcohol. So this testing we do is extremely important to protect public safety yes. as well as to preserve the professional life of highly trained professional men and women. We do also do testing for non-professionals who have uh, providers who are helping them is secure and ensure their recovery by putting them on a urine drug screening program with testing similar to what we've been talking about. So this, um, you have a very um, specialized niche in terms of you are working with people for whom a high quality chain of custody, and by that we mean that the person who draws up the paperwork and the person who is the donor or the person giving the urine specimen or the nail specimen or the hair specimen, um, they sign off and that is put in a package, sealed, uh, all the paperwork is, is filled out, a copy given to the donor, a copy for the person who did the test, and then that's sent off to the lab, and then everybody from the person who receives it from UPS or FedEx to the person reading it to the person giving out the results, all their information, all their initials are on there so that you can certify from that person to the result of that test, this is your urine. That is 100% correct. You outlined the system perfectly. And it is, of course, critical. Mistakes can be made. Right. They're not often made, but they can be made. And the proper chain of custody and the documentation of that, again, secures the right of the donor that they're not being labeled inappropriately and wrongly with a positive test. It ensures their, the integrity of their specimen. Uh, and it is critical. And yes, all specimens we collect and that I'm involved with are collected under chain of custody mm -hmm. protocol with lots of signatures and lots of initials and tamper evidence seals. Uh, and uh, I believe it's part of the donor's task when donating to ensure that they watch the collector, mm -hmm. handle their specimen, seal it, put it in the tamper-evident travel bag, and be sure all of that is done within within the donor's own vision uh, because mm -hmm. it's critical. Right, because what can happen if there is a positive drug test? What can happen? Well, and for the professional clients that, that we monitor, which is, again, the bulk of the people I interact with, what can happen is they can lose their license to practice the profession. For the uh, young adult population, many of whom have therapists and, and addiction specialists who are working with them, uh, what can happen is they can lose access to their educational fund. They can lose the ability to continue to live with their parents if if strict guidelines have been drawn up mm -hmm. and consequences have been determined. And those things, though they sound mean and awful, are very important to, again, help the, the sober person stay sober. Uh, and staying sober is not an easy task. It's a day-at-a-time job. Uh, and I do believe very strongly 
that urine drug screening adds another level of responsibility mm-hmm. and another level of assurity, and it works best when there are consequences that fall upon the donor if, in fact, he is not able to maintain mm-hmm. his or her sobriety. So that is critical. And I think for a lot of families, you're talking about the folks outside the professional track that most of your work is, but for family members that want to um, assure themselves and, um, and rebuild the trust, knowing that the drug testing is being performed and knowing that their loved one is in compliance with that allows that trust in that relationship because one of the things we know happens over and over again um, and is one of the serious consequences of this brain disease is that it really breaks down relationships and families and uh, spouses um, and and one of the ways to rebuild trust is I am being compliant and and here is my evidence. And here is the proof. It's exactly correct. And there is so, as so many of you out there know, there's so much more to recovery than just a clean urine drug screen. However, that is the only hard and fast objective evidence that we can use to document sobriety. Mm-hmm. So therefore it is important. It's very, very important. important. So there are other things that go into it besides the chain of custody. Um, because, as you mentioned before, um, sometimes it might be Mountain Dew. Or the other thing, sugar-free uh, lemonade from Chick-fil-A. Also, it doesn't, it doesn't foam when you, you know, like the, the Mountain Dew. Well, I do know somebody who actually used diet Mountain Dew so they didn't think he had diabetes, and he made the bubbles go out overnight. Oh. So it also works. Okay. Well, when we come back, we're going, to talk, we're going to talk about validity testing. So please stay tuned. We'll be right back. I did. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Are your health insurance premiums going up? You are not alone. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org to understand why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. This is Grace Marie Turner, President of the Galen Institute. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, 
You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. This is Detailing Addiction. In studio today, I have with me David Donaldson, the CEO of the Atlanta Healing Center, and my special guest, Dr. Barry Lubin, who is the medical director for Affinity Health, a um, urine drug testing company that specializes in working with professionals, but also with monitoring programs for people who maybe don't have a license to practice um, their profession. Right before the break, whoo, I just cracked my voice. Right That's before the break, <laughs> I'm good. Right before the break, we were talking about, uh, in addition to the importance of the chain of custody and the very expensive machines to read the tests, there's something called validity testing that a lot of patients forget about when they're trying to trick the drug screen or the drug test. Can you enlighten us a little bit I'd about that? I'd be happy that? to. <laughs> uh, and for all of you out there who are interested, if you Google how to beat a urine drug screen, you'll see thousands upon thousands of entries with suggestions. Uh, some of them, a few of them work. Those of you who have ever been in a head shop, and I doubt anybody out there has ever done that, <laughs> but if you have, you're very aware that many, many products are sold that guarantees a urine test cleaning, a pass on a urine test. What those people are selling for twenty nine ninety nine or thirty nine ninety nine, and some even come with a money back guarantee. Usually, the package contains a small amount of an inert substance, which the directions say take, and then follow the, this inert substance with six to eight twelve ounce glasses of water, because what they're doing to help people pass a drug test is diluting the mm -hmm. urine. Urine testing requires good urine testing. Forensic urine testing requires the urine to have multiple tests to validate the fact that, again, that yellow fluid is urine, not Mountain Dew or lemonade. Uh, one of the things we look for in urine to validate it as urine is a substance called creatinine. Creatinine is not the creatine you buy in the health food store, but it is a muscle breakdown product from body's metabolism, and creatinine is excreted in the urine. Because bodies are so different in their habitus, uh, and muscle mass is so different, the range of normal 
for urine creatinine is a low of 20 and a high of 300, which is a very large range. But what we know from testing a lot of people is the average person on the average day has an average urine creatinine of about 100. So when the urine go, when the specimen goes to the lab and the laboratory reports the creatinine back to uh, me as the medical review officer, for example, I, one of the first, the, actually it is, the first thing I do when I see a report is look for the creatinine. Where are they? Even normal 2530, if somebody is a well-built or normally built average body person, a creatinine that's still normal of 25 or 30 is significantly lower than that average creatinine of an average urine on an average day of 100. So that immediately puts up my red flags. What's going on? Why is this person drinking lots of fluids before going to the collection site? And very often the answer I hear from the donor is, well, I only had an hour, so I had to drink, 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 drink to be sure I could pee, pardon my French, before I could (laughs) void when I got to the site. Uh, And there is some truth to that. However, what we know for a normal body habitus person to produce a urine with a creatinine less than 50 even, they have to consume an inordinate amount of water or other clear liquids. The other thing we always look at also, especially amongst the health professionals that I deal with, is the drug called caffeine, which is ubiquitous in the coffee that so many health professionals are drinking all day. Caffeine does function as a diuretic, Mm -hmm. so caffeine ingestion on top of other clear fluids can lower the creatinine. In addition to looking for evidence of dilution, a good laboratory will look at the pH. Those of you who remember basic chemistry from high school, pH measures the acid-base level of a substance. A pH of 7 is neutral. pH lower than 7 is acid, and a pH greater than 7 up to 14 is basic. The human body cannot produce urine with a pH lower than 3.0 or greater than 11.0. But if one of those hints on the Internet is sneak in some vinegar and put it in your urine when they're not looking, and that lowers the pH to invalidate the test. If they use too much vinegar, they're caught. Similarly, add basic fluid, lye, to urine. That's there, too, on the Internet. So that's important to be tested. We also look at the temperature of the urine, because that's also very important. Urine, body fluids, approach normal body temperature. Normal body temperature, as all of us know, 98.6. So the urine in the cup should never be lower than 90. And that's really given people a lot of leeway for a very air-conditioned collection site. Should (laughs) never be lower than 90, nor higher than 100, with the exception of someone going to donate with a very high fever, 
someone going to donate immediately after a heavy workout at the gym and their body is still hot, if you will, or somebody donating while in the middle of a heat stroke. Those are the only acceptable reasons for hot urine. Now, why would we, I mean, why would we even be concerned? Because people who are being monitored, who are not being sober, will do all sorts of things, like borrow urine from their baby's diaper and bring it in in a cup and not heat it up adequately or overheat it. And again, when not observed, uh, we'll add that urine to the cup. Also, we know there are certain dog species that produce urine with zero creatinine. Human beings cannot produce urine with a creatinine definitively less than two, and less than five is extremely suspicious as well. There have been a couple of cases reported over the years with creatinines three and a half and four. So the absolute final line is creatinine less than two is not human urine. Two to five, extremely suspicious. Five to 20 of concern, major concern. Mm -hmm. I know in um, in the Gwinnett County and in some of the other drug courts, if it comes in at 20 or below, it's automatically considered intentional trying to deceive the court and you're you're you'll be violated and in jail for 30 days yeah but considered positive even if there's nothing in yeah Yeah. that makes sense and because a dilute screen and and formally it would be read as dilute as if i reviewed that as a medical review officer but a dilute screen is neither positive nor negative it's dilute and therefore the court system's correct Mm -hmm. they cannot assume it to be negative the fact is, if somebody uses a little bit, dilution will work for a while. The disease of addiction always wins, however. So it doesn't, their success at fooling the system does not last very long in most cases uh, because eventually they will be using too much right. to dilute it out. And I certainly have seen dilutes that are also positive. Mm-hmm. For oh, absolutely. Uh, Part of what's what's been so important <clears throat> in our practice in looking at the, the drug screen results is testing that they also have the medications present that are being prescribed. That is um, correct. Because we will often have something shows up and, and the right meds aren't there, and we have to sit down with the person and mm-hmm. ask where this urine's coming from. That's also very important for people who are getting prescriptions of controlled substances and not taking them themselves, but rather using them to supplement their income. Uh, Very important for people on medication-assisted therapy with buprenorphine. Buprenorphine has street value. Methadone has street value. And if somebody is in a methadone program or on buprenorphine maintenance, it's very important to look at that urine drug screen Mm -hmm. to see that there's presence of not only buprenorphine, but the metabolite of it as well. And the ratio's okay. And the ratio's okay. Because, again... 
some addicts and alcoholics can be very smart and hurt themselves trying to beat a system and know that the buprenorphine is going to be looked for. So they'll put a little of their film, suboxone film, into the urine, but there won't be any urine metabolite mm-hmm. of the buprenorphine. So again, this is an adulterated specimen in somebody who's not doing recovery, who's not doing recovery seriously. Before we leave this minute for a minute, my, my synapses are firing. One of the other things I wanted to mention that is done for all collections that we at Affinity are, are working with are a two-tube collection system. That Let me explain. Yes, please. What happens when the donor voids, they void into a cup, you know, with a wide mouth. It's a nice, easy target for both <laughs> men and women. Uh, but then the collector in front of the donor will pour that urine from the cup directly into two test tube type tubes, which is then uh, screwed, closed, and then sealed with an initial initialed seal to verify again that the donor has said that is my urine in those tubes. When those two tubes go to the lab, get to the laboratory, one tube goes to the testing area of the laboratory. The other tube immediately goes into a freezer. Uh, and it's left there for the donor to have access to if the tube A comes back with a positive and the donor says, impossible, the laboratory made an error, that second tube, which is still sealed, chain of custody intact, is then available to have a repeat test done on it. Thank you. Well, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about fun with alcohol and drug testing. Thanks for listening. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? 
We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. In studio today, I have Dr. Barry Lubin, who is the medical director of Affinity eHealth. And we're talking today with David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center about urine drug testing and um, uh, some of the unusual and very creative ways in which people attempt to fool the drug test. We have to back up a minute, though, before we talk about alcohol, because I think that is a special subject, with the idea that most people, if they're having to be drug tested, maybe it's for a job, a pre-employment, or ongoing for their job, random drug testing, um, whether the court system, whether you're a interstate truck driver and you need to maintain your license, whether you're a healthcare professional, there's a lot riding on that drug test, and often there can be some significant consequences. But as we explain at the Atlanta Healing Center, we use the drug testing not to say, oh, you're such a bad person, see, we caught you doing wrong. We use it to say the treatment plan we have right now is not working. What do we need to do to change the treatment plan to help you be more successful with your recovery? Because at the end of the day, that's what's really important. I agree with you completely, Susan. Addiction is a progressive and fatal disease. And you pick up the papers every day and see the reality of the fatality of the disease of addiction. Drug screening is not about a gotcha game. Drug screening adds can add a layer to somebody's recovery to help them stay sober. Will somebody use, in the, even knowing they're going to have a screen the next day? Maybe. But maybe it will give them enough moment to pause mm-hmm. and to say, whoa, I may be tested tomorrow. I'm going to go to a meeting. I'm going to call my sponsor. I'm going to get on my knees and pray to a power greater than myself if I'm practicing 12-step recovery, which I strongly support. Uh, Something to stop and hope that rational thinking wins and the insanity of addiction does not take someone into that place where they're exposing themselves to lethal, potentially serious and potentially lethal consequences. Again, we see it in the newspapers every day. Uh, And those of us who work in the field see it in our offices every day. Uh, This is a serious business. It's sort of easy to slip into the the gotcha and how am I going to beat this. And and the sad piece is many people who are being tested do play that game. So the other piece of testing is certainly for the professionals that we at Affinity Monitor, it's critical to protect the public. Yes. And certainly in the DOT world, for the bus drivers and the cab drivers and and the folks who are licensed, commercially licensed, uh, to, to 
to be motor vehicle uh, workers. It's critical for public safety to have good, valid, comprehensive drug screening. Some people might say, you know, the American Civil Liberties Union might call it an invasion of privacy, demanding somebody's body fluid. And maybe that's true. But, you know, there's the public good that has to be looked at. And I think, in my opinion, that wins over the invasion of my body's fluids privacy. I, I totally agree. My, my father... Um, when he was um, active in his career was a nuclear physicist and he worked at an atomic energy plant where they were they had nuclear reactors and drug testing was a big part of that um, that industry it was very important that everybody handling this very potentially lethal material was tested and that they were on their game they were sharp they were clean they were sober because millions of lives were at stake if there's a mistake. Um, we, we think of airline pilots. You know, hundreds of people are in those planes every day. So public safety, I think, is um, such an important part of this, too, and that is a balance. And as professionals, you know, as a physician, um, we practicing medicine is not our right. I mean, they can't take our MD away, but, um, you know, we need to be safe. We need to be safe in what we're doing, and that's part of the expectation that the public has, that we are doing the right thing and safe to take care of them. So, yes, it does feel very punitive to some folks, and I know there's a big reaction, but it's also a protection. Very much so. And Very I, much I so. tell and folks I, if they're ever in a car accident, if they're in recovery, if they're in a car accident, something bad happens at work, go get tested right now because you want to just make sure that there is no question that accidents happen. Okay, that happens, but it's not because I was impaired. Correct. Well, and I think that that addiction in particular um, thrives on opportunity. And the cravings will get much, much stronger if the person thinks I could get away with it. Yes. And them just knowing that the drug screen is there helps keep that at bay. The other thing that we do real regularly is sit down with them and let them see the results and show them how much it's telling us. It's telling us that this is being processed through your body. It's telling us that this chemical is leaving your body at this pace. So they're seeing it as a working tool to help with their recovery process. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, very valuable. For exa And some drugs will hang around a long time. Yes. The classic one is marijuana. If Cheech and Chong, when if those of you are old enough to remember <laughs> Cheech and Chong, if Cheech or Chong had gone into treatment today, his urine drug screen might not have been clean for two to three to even four months. People who are chronically using substance like marijuana will have a progressive and over time washout of the metabolites from their body. But when when Dr. when Susan and Dr. and David are working with a, a client at Atlanta a patient at Atlanta Wellness Center, they can follow that level of the THC to be sure what they're seeing is a gradual decline rather than oh it's coming down but there's a shoot up because somebody relapsed on their disease over that weekend prior. So it becomes a very valuable tool mm -hmm. for that aspect as well. Yeah, it really helps us to see somebody who's really trying and has a slip 
versus someone who's just there trying to get their parents off their back and not really trying at all. Correct. And that support, I think, is is very important and and can be life saving um, if you can catch the disease as it is beginning to activate again um, in the early stages and prevent a, a terrible outcome. Then then so much the better. And I I firmly believe this is such an important part of any person's not only active treatment plan, but the monitoring, the longer term uh, monitoring that we see is um, is really important. We see, we know, and I appreciated Dr. DuPont speaking at ASAM about the way that we look at outcomes, that the idea that addiction is an episode of care and now you're cured or you go for 30 days and now you're done, that we need to rethink it and we need to rethink it in terms of a five-year. We look at cancer rates, you've got a five-year survival, you know. We we know the data is very clear, particularly with our professionals, that if you are clean and sober for five years, the chances that you will remain that for the rest of your life really high. So we need to be encouraging the active participation in a recovery plan for much longer than 30 days or even 60, 90 days. And perhaps even longer than five to seven to ten years. Addiction is a lifetime disease. Yes. And people who have it, just like people who have diabetes, there is no cure. There is remission. But to help guarantee that sustained remission, services need to continue to be given. And to say, well, I'm going to be monitored for two years and now I'm done, there really is not a lot of sense to that. Right. But that is, unfortunately, the way it is. Monitoring is good, and we've learned from studies of professional programs that the seven-year success rate of long-term sobriety amongst uh, over 700 physicians who were studied over that seven years was greater than 90%. And there were two major differences between that group and the average non-professional who gets into recovery. One is that most of them had intensive treatment. But the other one is that they all were subjected to urine drug screen testing, which again proves to me that testing helps people stay in recovery. Well, and with that group, they also all had that strong awareness of their license to practice was contingent on the clean drug screen. Significant consequence. So in, in working with regular people, helping them find, like you were talking about with adolescents, helping them find what the consequence will be within the family to give some more weight to the drug screen itself. That is correct, very much so. Uh, it's a carrot and a stick. And again, I don't particularly love that metaphor because the disease is more harmful than the stick of a positive drug screen. But it really... The carrot of of a reward, of continuing the happy life that sobriety brings, is a beautiful thing. But again, the disease is a disease of insanity, so rational thinking does not always win. Mm Yes, one of my one of my patients described it as a delusional disorder, that um, the way in which people understand themselves and their own thinking is almost a psychosis in that they see 
this substance as the solution to all of their problems and cannot understand that it is most likely the cause of most of their problems. And that craziness is is part of the struggle. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous describes that in The Alcoholic as, quote-unquote, a peculiar mental twist. That twist that even though the alcoholic, the drug addict, knows exactly what's happened all the previous times, the thought comes that today is going to be different. (laughs) Today, I'm going to have two drinks, visit with my buddies, go home and have a lovely evening with my wife and kids. Today. But for the last 10 years... (laughs) That first two drinks led to 20 more, and nobody got home, and he had six DUIs. Wife has filed for divorce, but today it's going to be different. going to be different. The peculiar mental twist exactly. that lives in the brain of folks with the disease of addiction. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I promise we will talk about alcohol. Thanks for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. 
Welcome back. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. Today I have with me Dr. Barry Lubin, who is the medical director for Affinity eHealth and um, also a diplomat and a board-certified addiction doctor by the American Board of Addiction Medicine, a fellow of ASAM well-respected in the field of addiction medicine. We've been talking today as well with David Donaldson, who's also well-respected in the field of addiction, um, from the Atlanta Healing Center. We're talking about drug testing. And I did want to get to alcohol, because this has been such an interesting journey over the last few years with drug testing for alcohol. And it's probably the most common thing that's positive for most people. Alcohol, statistically, alcohol is the most commonly used slash abused drug. And I do say alcohol is a drug because it is. Yes. It's a legal one and it's been legal all these years, but some people like to say it's not a drug. But what we know from the neurochemistry is that alcohol, the benzodiazepine drugs are essentially a martini and a pill. Yes. The effects on the brain of alcohol are exactly the same as they are of all of the common drugs of abuse that people use and abuse. Prior to about 8 to 10 years ago, drug testing for alcohol was near impossible for several reasons. One, alcohol goes in rapidly. Uh, No matter how much alcohol goes in... (laughs) It goes out rapidly. Uh, for example, if somebody stays on the bar stool till 2 o'clock in the morning uh, and they're subjected to a test that next day, if they drink enough fluid, and not even to dilute, but if they just keep their kidney flow working, by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, all the alcohol, as much as it was, is long gone. So that was one problem with testing for alcohol. The other problem with urine drug screening for alcohol is the fact that uh, alcohol can be produced in the specimen cup after the urine has been voided as a result of fermentation. Urine is a, uh, contains a small amount of sugar, even in non-diabetics, and in diabetic patients it's more common because there's more sugar. Sugar plus bacteria and or yeast in the presence of a warm, wet environment will result in fermentation, and that produces alcohol. So people who were drinking were very often not detected with that alcohol in their urine, and people who weren't drinking often were detected with alcohol in the urine as a result of fermentation. The good news for addiction and for monitoring is that that all changed some 8 to 10 years ago when we began to work with two metabolites of alcohol, substances that are produced by the liver when alcohol is ingested. These two substances have fancy, silly names, but they're abbreviated ETG and ETS. If somebody has two to three to four drinks of alcohol today, they can have present in their urine substances ETG and ETS for up to 72 to 96 hours thereafter. And ETG and ETS are never falsely produced in the cup. If ETG and ETS is in the urine, that tells me that that person has ingested by some route, oral, inhaled, 
rectally, ingested by intravenously, they've injected alcohol by some route. And then the newest metabolite that we're now beginning to also get a handle with is a substance that's abbreviated P-E-T-H, that stands for a very long, ugly word called phosphatidylethanol. And that substance is, again, a metabolite of alcohol, but it stays in the bloodstream because it's a big fat molecule that can't get through the kidneys. And in addition to it staying in the bloodstream, it binds to the red blood cell membranes. And as a result, when we can detect PETH in the blood of somebody that's drawn today, that will tell me that that person has consumed at least seven ounces of alcohol within the previous two to three weeks, either in one binge or several ounces a day over that two to three week window. The detection level is defined as greater than a value of 20. And that's because the machinery is still not sophisticated enough to detect lower than than 20. But they're working on that and they're working on perhaps even refining detection of PETH in a more sophisticated way. So that alcohol testing has become very valid and very valuable, and it's helped a great deal, again, in, in ensuring public safety, as well as letting folks who are primarily alcoholic know that it's not going to be easy to drink and get away with it. Right. Which is, again, that important message that helps so many people stay clean. So the the understanding that I've been getting with the the PETH test is what we've been referring to it as um, <laughs> is that it really is picking up someone who has abused alcohol as opposed to somebody who just had one drink. Is would that be an accurate? A positive PETH test will come only if someone has ingested a minimum of seven ounces. So if that one drink were a shot of seven. That could do it, but if one drink was one ounce, then yes, you're correct, David. So one, you know, four ounces of red wine or, or five ounces of white wine or a 12, yeah, ounce 12 ounces of beer. beer. Regular beer, not the high-octane right. 9% beer, but regular beer um, the and an ounce and a half of liquor. Times um, seven. Times time seven. seven. So a nice evening. Right. And again, it or also... Or a little bit every day. Right, uh-huh. or two ounces, an ounce every day. Okay. Also. But again, for folks who are being monitored because they're in recovery, there's not supposed to be any. Right. Interestingly, and uh, I'm not sure if it's good news or bad news, but the DOT does not monitor folks for alcohol use. Oh, they will only test for alcohol... If there's suspicion, alcohol on breath or an accident on a, in a, 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 monitored, a monitored person, then they will do alcohol testing. Routine DOT testing does not look at alcohol ingestion. Well, and a while back, um, we had gone through the certification process to be SAP, Substance Abuse Professionals, for that. And at that point, I don't know if they still do, but they were really requiring that you do a follow-up test to see if that alcohol is on the rise or on the way back down before you made any judgment about That's correct. About so, that. And they depend a lot on breathalyzers, which are also full of inaccuracies. ETG testing is very valuable 
but I believe it's due to the bureaucracy and the slowness at which change can happen in government agencies. They do no ETG testing. They do no PETH testing. They do only breathalyzer and blood alcohol, which, again, will has a very is full of potential errors and has a very limited window of detection. Right, and I'm I'm always interested that the maritime trade, you know, the uh, the coast guard and the people who drive these big container uh, vessels. Um, I think about that horrible accident of the Valdez where the guy was was drunk, was drunk. Um, and unfortunately they don't test for alcohol routinely so um, very interesting the politics of which type which industry tests for which thing and um, and the cutoff levels and all of that are uh, probably much more um, lenient than those that we use at in the uh, addiction treatment and certainly in the monitoring field. We have to be very specific. Not only this is your urine, um, this is really urine, this is um, appropriate for everything that you're supposed to be taking and not appropriate for things that you're not supposed to be taking, and that you are in compliance with everything. People will say, well, why can't I drink alcohol? It's legal. Um, the reason that we always have to say is because addiction is a brain disease. It's not the substance that's the problem. It's your brain that's the problem. So abstinence means no alcohol as well. I'd like it to also say no tobacco, but that's a whole other base. So if you're interested in learning more about the Affinity product for monitoring, uh, you can certainly reach them at their new website. Which is www.affinityplace, A-F-F-I-N-I-T-Y-P-L-A-C-E, affinityplace.com. And we thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Lubin, and thank it's you, my David. my pleasure. Glad to be here. And thank we'll you. see you all next week on Detailing Addiction. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.